Titus chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, though we will really spend the majority of our time considering together today verse 13. Let's back up to verse 11 and read the passage that we considered last week as it flows into the passage that we consider today. May we give our our attention to the reading of His Word. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and with uh, rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. We'll spend just a few moments reviewing together some of the things that we considered last week and the weeks before. But as we considered last week from verse 11, it is God's grace, that is to say, His unmerited favor, favor that you have in Him that you don't earn, that you don't deserve, that isn't based upon anything that you've done, how good you are, or any such notion as the good that you've done outweighing the bad that you've done, but God's grace, His unmerited favor, and His grace alone has brought you salvation. This salvation hath appeared to all men, And by all men, he doesn't mean every person without exception because we know there are people in the world who are not born again. It doesn't mean all males because certainly there are many males in the world who are not born again and there are many females who are born again. But all men there means simply some of all types or all sorts of men. All sorts of people, in other words, have been born of the Spirit of God. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to them. It has entered their life. They have been saved by the grace of God. Old men, young men, old women, young women, servants and masters, Jew and Greek, bond and free, every type of person, among every type of person, there are people who have been saved by the grace of God. And as grace appears, it does some things in our lives. First of all, It teaches us to deny ungodliness, and second of all, it teaches us, it causes us to yearn for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Considering that first point, in short, in addition to the flesh, when we are born of the Spirit of God, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. Not only do we have the nature of the flesh or the nature of Adam, but we also have the nature of the Spirit, the nature of Christ And so the laws of God being written on our hearts, we suddenly remorse, we experience remorse when we sin and we hunger and we thirst after righteousness. It's why we can receive the gospel as it is preached to us, and it's why the gospel brings life and immortality to light, because God has given us life, and this life teaches us. It changes us. We are not the same after the new birth as we were before the new birth. Also, being born of the Spirit of God, possessing the nature of Christ, the nature of the Holy Spirit, being made partakers of the divine nature, 
we do not feel that we fit in in this world. Sometimes we get comfortable in this world. And in America, we have such ease and prosperity that many times we are numbed to the feeling that we simply don't fit in and we don't belong. But deep down in the heart of a child of God, there is a yearning to be delivered from this world that is sparked at the new birth. And so Scripture describes us as people who are strangers and pilgrims. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, Peter exhorts his audience as those who are as good as strangers and pilgrims to live in a certain way. Paul would write, the writer of Hebrews would write in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, referring to those who are in the honor roll of faith, "...these all died in faith, not having received the promises." These are Old Testament saints but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. A stranger and a pilgrim. Why do we call the pilgrims pilgrims in the early United States? Because they got onto a vessel, they crossed the Atlantic Ocean, they landed in North America and... They entered into a wilderness with no home, with hardly any food, living off the land that they were not born into as foreigners making their way in the frontier. We are pilgrims in this world as God's children. We do not belong here. And if we look for a world that is the type of world that we would belong to, then we will be disappointed in this life. The whole point of our experience is that we are strangers and pilgrims here in this world. You will not fit in. He continues in Hebrews 11, verse 36, Others had trial of cruel mocking, scourgings, bonds and imprisonment, They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They're Old Testament saints. They didn't receive the promise. You've received the promise. It doesn't mean they're not in heaven. But they have not experienced the New Testament. They yearned for it. They looked for it. But they didn't receive what we enjoy with the hindsight, the 2020 hindsight, looking back to the cross, enjoying the New Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament capacity in our lives. We have so much better than they had, and yet the world was not worthy of them. But we very much are strangers and pilgrims in this world. In fact, in chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul says, We, seeing we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, them, the many Old Testament saints that yearned for Christ, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight And the sin which doth so easily beset us, which is the sin of unbelief, if we take the context to define it, let us lay aside unbelief and run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. We are, in short, 
strangers and pilgrims who look for another country. And the reason you look for another country isn't because you're somehow naturally different than those around you. You look for another country because you are born of God, because he lives within you. This world is not your home, and you simply do not fit in. I hope that's your experience in the world. If there's anything that a year like 2020 teaches us, it's that we don't belong here. We're looking for another house in the heavens made without hands. The new birth has taught us. God's grace has taught us. I intended to take verses 11 through 15 in one message, and then I felt led to take it in two messages, and now after studying this week, I intend to take it in three messages. You have an eternal subject and an hour a week. And so we're in no rush. You say, you'll die before you get all this done. That's right. That's the point. Our primary focus today will be verse 13 of this beautiful passage. Next week, we hope to consider this Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us. But today, we consider looking for that Christ, yearning for him and his second coming, the Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things we speak and we exhort and we rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. We're taught by grace to yearn for the coming of Christ in the world. Let's look at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, just to be very clear about that last statement, we look for the coming of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. This is not indicating to us that Jesus is not God. The word here, and, sometimes translates even. But a man can be a husband and a father... A man can be a brother and a son. The Lord Jesus is our God, but he is also our Savior. And so we find both of those descriptive articles describing him here. At the same time, the Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, the three-in-one God. At the second coming of Christ, we will experience Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three who are one, not merely the Son, but we will be in the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And so we have reference here to the Godhead, in whose presence we will stand at the second coming, but also specifically our Savior Jesus Christ, who will return to this world again and will judge it, will deliver his people, and will destroy this world and even this universe, a universe that is now marred and tainted with sin because of the transgression of Adam. As we begin to dig into our text, looking for Christ, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Christ Jesus. 
Praise God for the sound of little ones in our church again. It's been about two or three years since we've had a baby crying, and I so miss it. Sister Faye said one time, and we miss her, she's not with us today. She said, when babies aren't in the church, the silence is deafening. It's awful. It doesn't even feel like church. Doesn't it feel great to have babies in church? Praise God for babies in church. Don't ever let that concern you. I love to have babies in church. Anyway, anytime we haven't had a baby in a while and I hear a baby, I get excited. Church without babies is a church without future. A church without young people is a church without future. A church without new people is a church without future. Praise God that we have a church with future and potential here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. Okay. We look for that blessed hope. Looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul writes that we look for that blessed hope. Now, what do we mean by, what does Paul mean looking for that blessed hope? Generally, when we say hope, we have reference to the emotion that we feel. And a part of the regenerated soul is hope. We have a yearning for something that is better than this world. We have an earnest anticipation of being with Christ. That's what's satisfied when we hear the Word of God the first time and the second time and the third time and every time we hear it preached. We have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a hope within us, and that hope does cause us to yearn for Christ. However, when Paul writes this word hope here, He has reference to more than merely the emotion that we experience. And I'm going to say that and leave you hanging with it and come back to that point in just a moment. But I want to speak about the Christian doctrine of hope briefly. As we consider hope, it's a very important Christian doctrine. On one hand, it is the earnest expectation of deliverance from this wicked world. We talked about the fact that we are strangers and pilgrims in the earth as we wander. That experience... That yearning for deliverance is hope. Because we don't sorrow as others who have no hope. The very word hope conveys that we are hopeful. That we look with optimism knowing that as we leave this world as God's children, something better awaits us than that which we experience down here in the world. And that's the doctrine of hope. Within us, we feel this emotion of the earnest expectation of deliverance. On the other hand, hope, again, a very important Christian doctrine, the emotion, the experience of hope, even delivers us from our despair when we sorrow and we suffer in the world. We read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The whole creation. Previously in this chapter, we read about the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Where do you get that definition of hope, the earnest expectation of being with God in glory? I get it exactly from Romans eight nineteen. Because the very next statements have to deal, in fact, the very next verse deals with hope. And so hope is the earnest expectation of deliverance from this groaning world. 
In verse 19, we have referenced the creature, the individual. In verse 22, we read the whole creation, which has reference not to an individual creature, but all of creation. Everything groans and travails in pain because of the sin of Adam. And because of that, it waxes old, thus a garment, and God does intend to put it out of its misery one day as he burns it with fire in the second coming of Christ. We know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. I love that our experience here, as great as it is with Christ, is but the first fruits. That means that it's a small little taste of what we experience with Him in glory. And as we read in this chapter, if a person doesn't possess the Spirit, he's none of his. To be cardinally minded is enmity against God. So then the, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 9, we have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of the body. Adoption isn't completed until the parent takes possession of the child that is adopted. We still stand in need, we yearn for, we wait for, perhaps would be a better way to say it, the completion of our adoption, though we've received the spirit of adoption. Redemption is a finished deed when the owner takes possession of that which is redeemed, and that will happen in the second coming of Christ. And with that in view, Paul says, for we are saved by hope. Now, this passage is in a context of suffering. In fact, earlier Paul says that, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. In other passages, Paul describes all of his affliction as his light affliction. A light affliction when you're beaten multiple times, when you're whipped with rods, when you're whipped with a scourge, when you're stoned and left for dead, when you're shipwrecked and float about on driftwood in the sea, when you're bit by serpents, when you're alienated from your home and your family, and you're always on the run, when people literally try to drag you into coliseums to have you devoured by animals, and yet, Paul, you say it's a light affliction? You know, if I stub my toe, I complain. I have a headache. I complain. So many things in this world cause us to moan and groan and grumble and complain. And yet there's a man who is abused each and every day by the enemies of Christ and he calls it a light affliction? Why? Because he knows that all of that combined isn't even worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits God's children. That is hope. And as we read in verse 24, we are saved by hope. Considering the doctrine of hope, hope delivers us in our moments of suffering. In our grief, hope is a deliverance to us 
because we yearn for that better day, that yearning being an earnest expectation of what we will experience. And it delivers us. Now, this isn't a new birth saving text. No, it's a daily struggle saving text. We're delivered from our despair through that earnest expectation that we have through the Holy Spirit. We are saved by hope. But in the book of Titus chapter 2, when Paul says, looking for that blessed hope, he doesn't have in mind the emotion of hope. Paul has in mind the object of our hope. Now here's where we get into the distinction between the emotion, the experience, and the object of that emotion or the object of that experience. This statement refers not to emotion, but to the object of our hope, and the object of our hope is Christ. Our hope is rooted in Christ, and as we read in Colossians 1.27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now, this is the amazing thing about understanding salvation by grace. It leaves no thing, nothing to the flesh, that no man should glory in his presence. Your hope is the result of Christ in you. You don't hope because you're smarter than other people. You don't hope because you're more spiritually attuned naturally than other people. You hope because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Old writers would even define faith as Christ in you, the hope of glory. But notice that Christ in this passage, Colossians 1.27, God would make known the riches of his glory, of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, the object of preaching is Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Christ is the hope of glory. The object of our hope is Christ. Another passage that describes Jesus in such a light, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Language such as that describes Jesus as the object of our hope. In other words, what is our hope rooted in? Our hope is rooted in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We'll use that as our closing number today in about 30 minutes. Our hope is rooted in Christ. He is the object of our hope. He is what has sparked our hope. He's the root of our hope. And He is what we hope for. The good thing about being in glory isn't merely that we don't suffer for our sins for eternity in hell that we deserve 
I'm thankful for that. But our hope is rooted in being with Christ for eternity. What makes heaven heaven is Christ. What makes heaven glorious is Christ. What makes heaven a place we want to be in is Christ. If you haven't figured it out, Christianity is all about Christ. And if I'm here for any other reason, I'm here for the wrong reason and my religion is vain. It's all about Christ. If there's one thing someone could say about our feeble efforts, I hope it is all about Christ. One time a man visited us after hearing a radio program, and he only visited once. But he said, I listen to you on WBXR every Sunday morning, and you know, if there's one thing that we can say about what you try to say in the pulpit, it's all about Christ. If you want to compliment a minister, that's it. Not you're smarter, you're eloquent, you're articulate, you're more bold. You really speak to the emotions. All the different things men say about ministers. He really gets me fired up. It's probably not one that they say about me. Instead of fired up, he's a fire-breathing dragon, maybe. That, that might be a little more in line. If you want to compliment a minister, tell him he's all about Christ and he makes you think about Christ and he makes you look to Christ and he speaks in such a way that you want to be around and be like and be with Christ. Because after all, we are the body of Christ, the church of Christ, the people of Christ, the bride of Christ, the elect of Christ, the redeemed of Christ. I hope that we're the friend of Christ. The Christ that redeemed, the Christ that gave himself, that he would purify us. Looking for that blessed hope has reference not to yearning for the emotional experience of deliverance, but looking for the object of our hope, that is Christ. Hope here has reference to Christ himself. Looking for that blessed hope is literally saying that we look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ here is our hope. I hope that you see the sense of that statement, the object of our hope. It isn't that we look for our hope, it's that we look for Christ. Now along these lines, and as a brief side point... Sometimes words like hope or even faith refer to the object of hope or the object of faith and not hope or faith necessarily as the emotion in a person. So we talk a lot about faith and we talk a lot about hope, but sometimes there are passages that speak of hope or faith that have reference not to the experience of it in our lives, but the object of it, what hope or faith looks to. What would be an example of that? I've shown you a couple of examples of hope having reference literally to the person of Christ. Where would an example be of the word faith that has reference to the object of faith and not to the experience of faith practically or experimentally in our lives? You might turn to a number of passages in the New Testament, but I think the most clear is found in the book of Galatians chapter 3. 
Paul is talking about the fact that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. After that faith has come, more than likely has reference not to your individual faith, but the object of our faith, the coming of the person of Jesus Christ in the world. Because the law was our schoolmaster, the law was given in an era of time, and it lasted for an era of time. The law ends not being destroyed, but being fulfilled by Christ at the coming of Christ. And from the coming of Christ forward, once that faith has come, we are no longer under the law as a schoolmaster, but we are free in Christ. The old covenant has ended. The new covenant is here. That faith, likely in Galatians 3, has reference to the object of faith and not necessarily the experience of faith, though by extension, certainly. Many times, this word faith has reference to the object of faith, which is who? Christ. Even the very presence of faith in our hearts by our forefathers was defined as Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love to find that definition in old writings. It was, it was an everyday part of old school Baptist vocabulary in the 1700s. I've read it in James Oliphant's writings. I found it in John Leland's writings. It was simply the way Baptists spoke about faith, faith being Christ in you, the hope of glory. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Gives you a different way to think about passages like Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. By grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But when we have Christ in you, the hope of glory, the object of faith in mind, it gives us a completely explosive view of how to consider those passages. It isn't that you believe, that's why it's not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It's because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. The object of hope, we look for that blessed hope. We look for the second coming of Christ, the coming of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's begin transitioning into Christ's appearing. Christ's appearing, you notice, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ's appearing will be glorious. In a word, Christ wins. If you want to know what eschatology, biblical eschatology, the study of end times can be summed up as in simply a statement, Jesus is victorious. Amen. He wins. He doesn't lose. He has nothing robbed from him that he died for, that he paid for. None of his enemies shall have the last laugh. He will not break even. It will not be a draw. It will not be a compromise. There will not merely be a ceasefire and a treaty. Jesus is completely, eternally, everlastingly, mightily victorious. 
I could think of a few more superlatives. Jesus wins. And the second coming of Christ will be absolutely glorious. It is the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us. Now there are three points that I want to share with you concerning the glory of the second coming of Christ. First of all, Jesus Christ will take home to be with him forevermore every single person that he has saved. We await adoption to wit the redemption of the body. And as Romans chapter 8 continues, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, set the destiny beforehand to be conformed to his son's image. That's adoption when he glorifies us. Those he did predestinate, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. You are predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. The same number that were predestinated or called, the same number that's called or justified, the same number that's justified will be glorified without the loss of one because Jesus wins. The second coming will be glorious. Juxtapose the two comings of Christ, the two advents of Christ in the world. The first time he is meek and lowly, a lamb. He rides into Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of an ass, not a white horse, not a white horse. He has nowhere to lay his head. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's mocked. He's ridiculed. He's the song of the drunkard. According to the Old Testament, they mocked him from his birth on. In the second coming, he's a king. He enters creation in a, on a white horse. On his thigh is written the word of God. A sharp two-edged sword goes from his mouth, according to Revelation 19. And he makes war against unrighteousness. Not as a general on the back end of the line of the front of troops, but... He is leading the charge. He is fighting the battle and his saints dressed in white robes follow after him. Because if he fights the battle, there's no need for the military that he would bring with him. And it will glorify him. His first coming he suffered. His second coming is in glory and vengeance and victory. He will take all of his saved all of his elect, all of his children, all of his bride, all of his people, all of his nation, all of his Israel, whichever scriptural metaphor you want to use for it, they'll all be taken with him. His redemptive work will be completely complete. Having taken, taken the possession of the product which he purchased by his blood upon the cross, that is you. As we consider that thought, I want to share a few scriptures with you along these lines. You see why we're only considering this verse today? Unapologetically so. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, 
when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power in the glorious second coming of Christ, Satan won't scoff. He'll bow his knee and confess. The tongue of Satan that was used to accuse even the brethren of Christ, as Satan is the accuser of the brethren, that tongue will suddenly be used to praise Christ. As he confesses, you are holy, you are king, and I am wicked. And he will be cast from his presence for all of eternity. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. They're not going to do it in faith, and they're not going to do it in love, and they're not going to do it in hope. They'll do it out of fear and submission because he is king. He delivers up the kingdom. To deliver it up means that it must first be here. This is why there are parables that deal with the present phase of the kingdom, such as the parable of the sower, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the seed that grows into a great tree. But there are also parables that deal with the final phase of the kingdom. The wheat and the tares. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a field and a a man sows wheat, an enemy comes and sows tares. And in the judgment, in the harvest, it'll be sifted and the wheat will be taken and the tares will be burned. That parable deals with the final phase of his kingdom. Then delivers he up the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But there's coming a day when it will be delivered up. He will take all of the citizens of his kingdom, all who are translated into it. I would exhort you to live in it and be a part of it even today because it is at hand. And so I call on you to repent and to turn and to enter into the kingdom. First Corinthians 15 verses 51 through 58. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed, referring to those who are alive and remain. Because if you read this, you are alive and remain. Now I want to be very clear, in the moment in the twinkling of an eye has reference to his coming, not the finality of the resurrection, the glorification, and the judgment. It isn't that one minute we're living down here and the next moment in the glimmer of light in an eye, it's all over and we're glorified in heaven, heaven wondering what has just happened. Now, Scripture describes it as an event in which the wicked of this world, the mighty of this world, the powerful of this world, the Psalm 73, wicked, powerful, ungodly man hides in the rocks and the rills, the caves of the earth, trying to flee from the wrath of the Lamb. The dead in Christ rise first. Those that are alive and remain will watch them come from the graves before they are taken up. It will be an event unlike any event that has ever occurred in all of history. And then everyone is gathered there at the white throne judgment of God and he separates them as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. According to Matthew verse Chapter 25 and verse 31. That's not over in a twinkling of an eye. His coming is in a twinkling of an eye. He isn't here, and he is. A few years ago, actually 
three decades ago, my dad was listening to a radio program and the host was speculating, what if we see Jesus coming on radar? What if the telescopes see him and we begin firing missiles at him? Well, you won't see him coming. It's like a thief in the night. You don't know because you're asleep and then, then it's happened. Someone did a donut in my yard last night at 2 a.m. I'm serious. It wasn't, and then it was. <laughs> we didn't know, and then it had already happened. Gives you perspective on some of these texts. What did I do to you? That makes a funny story, unless it's your yard. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he returns. And the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible. We which are alive and remain shall be changed. Corruption must put on incorruption. Mortal must put on immortality. Death is swallowed up in victory. And this victory we have through Christ. First Thessalonians chapter 4 gives us another perspective of the same event. This we say unto you, verse 15, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. The word prevent here means go beforehand. We use it today to mean hinder, but in 1611 it meant exactly what it says, prevent. What do the vents in your HVAC system do? They release air. To prevent means to pre-release or go before. Prevent here means to go beforehand. And so we which are alive and remain will not leave this world before the deceased saints in Christ. They will be resurrected. And then we which are alive and remain shall join with them in the air. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort ye one another with these words. Along those lines in the consideration of clouds, as Jesus ascends up to glory in Acts chapter 1, he ascends and clouds hid them out of his sight. In Revelation chapter 1, we read that he descends, he cometh with the clouds. He is not, and then he is. It's debated, will he ever set foot on this world again? If he comes in the clouds, that indicates that he will not. But he will be in the air, he will gather his people, he sends his angels, according to the Olivet Discourse, to gather his elect from the four winds. That means the Four quadrants of this planet, we still describe it that way today, the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere, the west and the east. He sends his angels to gather his people. We will all be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It does not say, and there shall we ever be with the Lord. We're not going to stay in the air. We don't float around in some ethereal, mystical cloud world with harps and halos with white wings for eternity. No, Scripture tells us where we go. We're caught up together with Him, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort ye one another with these words. We'll be with Him, but where we will be with Him is not described in this verse. 
comment on that in a moment. Jesus' second coming is glorious because he takes home every single person he has saved from the beginning to the end. He resurrects the dead from righteous Abel, the first martyr, to the last little child of God struggling in this world. Christ wins. He takes them home. Number two, Christ's second coming is victorious because he will judge his enemies. Sometimes this thought makes us uncomfortable. We have to view this from the heavenly perspective. Satan, his angels, and all of the people who were of their father, the devil, have spent an existence in total, complete rebellion, open assault against Christ. They hate him. They hate you because you love him, and they hate him, and so they afflict you to afflict him through you. Where do you get that? Well, the upper room discourse for one, but what did Jesus say to Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor that God had just changed by his grace? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? When he afflicted the body of Christ... It was as he was afflicting Christ. How offensive to God is that? Likewise, in Matthew 25, the passages after the one we began quoting in verse 31, Inasmuch as you have done kind things to the least of his brethren, you have done it unto him. We don't understand the bigger picture so many times. It's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about Christ. As we think about Christ judging his enemies at his coming and how this is glorious, when a righteous king defeats an evil foe, it is glorious. When Adolf Hitler was dealt with, it was glorious. When wicked men fall, there is a glory to that. People rejoice. Now, Scripture tells us not to rejoice at the falling of our enemies, lest God be displeased with us and then afflict us. No, we ought to take heed lest we fall. But when a tyrannical rule falls, the people under the tyrannical rule glory in it. There is a glory in God judging his enemies. Romans 9 talks about this. So many times we're so soft-hearted, we, we live in these very sheltered worlds, we don't realize the depth of sin and depravity and abuse and wickedness. But talk to a police officer, talk to a soldier, talk to a social worker, talk to someone who deals in counseling with children after they've been abused, and you'll suddenly come to realize how glorious it will be when God judges those who have done such things to innocent people. He will judge his enemies. Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Vengeance belongs unto the Lord. When we act in vengeance, we're stealing from God. We're using something we don't have the right to. Vengeance belongs unto him. 
He will repay, and therefore we are not to avenge ourselves. One of the most difficult teachings in Scripture is to turn the other cheek that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. How do we do that? When do we do that? When do we not do that? Well, there are other principles at play, defending other people, defending one's household, defending one's wife and children, one's city, one's country. But in general, as individuals, we turn the other cheek. We don't lash back. We don't attack. We don't avenge ourselves. Why? Because pacifism is better? No, because vengeance belongs to God. We have a legal system charged with justice to terrorize evil. Vengeance belongs to him. He will repay. There's no doubt about it. There's no question. God will avenge. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25, a passage we were just in, says that he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. At the second coming of Christ, what happens? Every single enemy shall be put under his feet, including the enemy of death, which he has already defeated in the resurrection, as he took up his body again that he laid down upon the cross. Lastly, under him judging his enemies, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 This passage deals with persecution and persecutors. The church at Thessalonica was a very persecuted church. It was a very afflicted church. That's why Paul wrote to them about the resurrection in 1 Thessalonians. They'd suffered many things of their kinsmen as Paul and his yoke fellows in the ministry had suffered at the hands of their kinsmen. We read some of this suffering in the book of Acts. As Thessalonica was a city that had many unbelievers that persecuted God's children. And understand, when that happens, God will have the last say. <clears throat> so that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations which ye endure. Second Thess 1.4 which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, suffering as martyrs, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they obey not the gospel because they know not God. And not only do these people, these people that he refers to very specifically, not obey the gospel, they did everything they could to kill those who preached it and believed it. And these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of His power when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed. In that day, now that statement, because our testimony among you was believed, is in parentheses. Read it without the parentheses. 
to all them that believe in that day, knowing what you just heard about the resurrection and the glorification, every child of God will be raised incorruptible with a perfect understanding and knowledge of Him in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of His calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of His work of faith with power. It will be glorious because in flaming fire He will take vengeance on them that do not know Him and that persecute His people. Lastly, number three, His appearing will be glorious because this entire universe marred by sin, sin which is a stench in His nostrils, an offense to His character and His person, sin that was brought into the world by his first man, Adam, directly created by God in his image, upright and perfect in a beautiful paradise who used the will of God, this will that God had given him, I should say, this will that reflects God's own ability to choose and desire. He uses that to violate God's law plunging creation into depravity, God will destroy the universe and it will glorify Him. Second Peter chapter 3, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? In other words, if you know everything down here is going to be burned up, why are you so distraught because of the things of this world? Your yard, your house, your company, your career, your nation, your government, your pursuits, the arts, the entertainment, the sports... Everything that is not rooted and grounded in His kingdom will be destroyed. And everything that is rooted and grounded and found in His kingdom will be taken with Him to glory. And that ought to have an effect on the way we live. As we look for and haste the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Of that new heaven and new earth, I read you a simple passage in closing from Revelation chapter 21. The second coming of Christ will be glorious because... He will be glorified in taking us to live in a land, in a world without sin. We look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth what? Righteousness. And righteousness alone. We will be glorified without sin. All enemies shall be banished from His presence. Revelation 21.1, I look and saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Remember, he took it up in the second coming. Well, what goes up must come down. You're going to land somewhere. You're not flying around the clouds for eternity. They're going to be burned up. 
I heard a voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and will be their God. Listen to this as we draw our thoughts today to a close. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he's, he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. These words are faithful and true. We look for And we say together, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we thank you so much for this hope. Not only the emotion we experience that delivers us understanding that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, but also the object of that hope and the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, that person that that gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Lord, we know that he is verily man and verily God, the God-man, the second person of the Godhead, the Word that was with God, was God, and was yet with God, who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Help us, Father, to live in faith and hope. Help us to look for the glorious appearing of this great God and our Savior who gave himself for us. Forgive us for our sins, for our distractions. Help us to understand that everything in this world is to be taken with a very loose grip because ultimately, regardless, your Son wins. And Lord, we pray that His coming would be today. But as long as it is until that moment, Lord, give us strength to be faithful as we look for that moment. Forgive us for our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. We say amen.